If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray. O Lord our God, Lord we ask that you would use your word this morning. Use it even in the way that you have intended, O Lord, to shape and mold the hearts of your people, to bring the dead to life, to remind us of the glories of our Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, as I've said, this section of the first chapter of Romans is one of the best known of all of the Bible. It is perhaps so well known because it is inextricably linked with Martin Luther. You may remember that Martin Luther was the one who set off the Reformation in Europe when he nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg. We celebrated this past October, the 500th anniversary of that. Now let me just remind you that Luther didn't just wake up one morning and say, you know what, I think I'm going to write some theses and nail them on the wall. No, this was something that Luther had come to from his study of the scripture, from how the scripture bound his conscience and bound him to Jesus. And Luther was a man of a very scrupulous conscience. He was very aware that God was holy and righteous and good. And he was also very aware at the same time that he, Martin Luther, was not. And so he was of a constant concern that he could not stand before a holy God. He took to confessing his sins over and over and over again. Day upon day, multiple times in the day, confessing the most minute of infractions to the point where his confessor said to him, Martin, when you have a sin worth confessing, come back to me. Luther was painfully aware of how short he fell before God. And so if anyone could try to earn God's favor, If anyone could try to make his own righteousness, Martin Luther tried. He did all the confessing that he could. He tried every attempt at works that he could to earn favor with God. At one point, he was sent on a journey by his fellow monks to Rome, the center of Christendom at this time. And Rome was a place where all of the the relics were supposedly held. A piece from the true cross. A cloth that Jesus was buried in. And there was one relic, a set of stairs. 
And this set of stairs was supposedly transported from Israel to Rome. It was the actual stairs that led to Pilate's office. Supposedly the stairs that Jesus himself climbed before his trial, before Pilate. And it was the habit of pilgrims to go and to climb those stairs. But if you're trying to show your worth before God, you can't simply bound up the stairs. No, you have to go up on your knees. And each step needs to be filled with time of prayer and confession and scripture memorization. And so Luther was doing this. So much so that it pained him. And then in the middle of his journey up the flight of stairs, it hit him like a thunderbolt. The text that he had read. The text that he had memorized. The just shall live by faith. And Luther realized that he'd had it all wrong all along. That he couldn't get into God's good graces. That he couldn't make himself righteous or holy before a righteous God. But his only hope of salvation lay in trusting the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. And so this morning, we're going to look at the gospel. I'd like us to see three things about the gospel that's presented in our text. First, the gospel is the power of God. It's not the power of man. It's not the power of the church. The gospel is the power of God. And then secondly, the gospel is for everyone. And finally, the gospel is a matter of faith. The gospel is the power of God. It is for everyone. And it is a matter of faith. Well, let's begin then by looking at the gospel as it is presented here in Romans 16 and 17. We might ask ourselves right at the beginning, why is there so much emphasis on the gospel in Paul's letter? After all, we're still in the first chapter. We've only gone through a paragraph or two. And over and over again, Paul is confirming the importance of the gospel. He said in verse 1 that he was set apart for the gospel. And then in verse 3, he directly related Jesus to the gospel. In verses 5 and 8, he emphasizes the faith of those who believe the gospel. And then in verses 14 and 15, he reminds us that the church is obligated to bring the gospel. We might put it this way, Paul sounds a bit like a broken record. Over and over again, reminding us of the gospel. And now again, he brings it to our attention, but he does it in an interesting way. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Now, at first glance, this seems like a very odd turn of phrase for Paul to use. What do you mean, Paul? You're not ashamed of the gospel? You've been going on and on and on about it already in this letter. It's what marks your life. You glory in the gospel and what it means. What do you mean when you say you're not ashamed of it? Well, I think the first thing we need to remember is the context into which Paul is speaking. The gospel is something at Paul's day and time that the wise heaped scorn upon. 
Those who talked about the gospel, taught the gospel, and believed the gospel were looked at as intellectual inferiors. They didn't really understand how the world worked. If they really understood intellectual matters and philosophy, they would not be prattling on about how the death of someone could set them free from sin and unrighteousness. But that was just the wise or the powerful or the intelligentsia. Because the bulk of the world just simply ignored the gospel. It never made it to a level of interest for them. And where Paul is right now is at the center of all worldly power. The center of the world that thinks it has no need for the gospel. Now I want to ask you this. Is this any different from the day in which you and I live in? Because don't the intellectuals today deride Christians as slow or dumb-witted? As those who don't understand science or can't think philosophically? Every Christian is supposedly someone who was never even able to get into college, much less graduate. And sometimes I wonder if, as I proclaim I'm a Christian, I should have special gloves to help me as my knuckles drag. But most of the world doesn't even get involved in that contest, do they? Because for them, the gospel is something that they need and never pay any attention to. Think about what the world focuses upon. It doesn't focus upon Jesus, upon the Bible, and upon Scripture. It focuses instead on who made the gown that the woman was wearing at the last awards show. As if somehow that was of critical importance. Or what is the ranking of the player who was drafted by the team? And were they under-selected or over-selected? And give me 150 reasons why each way. This is what we spend the bulk of our time on in our world. But Paul knows about people. He knows that circumstances may change, but people do not. The people in our day are the same as the people in Paul's day. And Paul knows that their need is the same as our need. Now we're going to look into this in detail later. But let me just summarize it for you. People are not righteous. This is what Paul will begin to say in verse 18 and following through to chapter 3. That people are not righteous. They are not good. Now, this should come as no surprise to you and me. If you ever read a newspaper or watch the news on television, this should be fairly obvious to you. The world is filled with lying. The world is filled with theft. The world is filled with murder and abuse. We take it as a granted that people are not righteous. You may recall that once someone asked the late R.C. Sproul how he could prove that people were evil. What was the proof of this? And R.C. looked at the gentleman and he said, Do you lock your door? And that's the truth, isn't it? We don't dare not lock our doors. We don't dare let our children out of our sight. Because we don't know the depth of the evil and the wickedness in the world around us. And so we know that we are not righteous. But instead, 
we see that the wrath of God is revealed against this unrighteousness and wickedness. And so when Paul says that he is not ashamed of the gospel, he is actually understating his case intentionally. He is saying that his lack of shame is proof of his belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's actually, I think, paraphrasing Jesus from Mark 8, where Jesus says, Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory. You see, what Paul is saying is, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of Jesus. I trust him with my life and my eternity. And I know Jesus will not be ashamed of me. Because he's given me his sure word and promise. And so what Paul does is he sets forth here the solution that he wants us to see. We might ask ourselves, what is the gospel good for? Well, Paul says that it's good for salvation because the gospel is the power of God for a purpose, for the purpose of salvation. The plain message that Paul is giving to us is that God's solution to the problem of sin and wickedness is the gospel. It's not just a hope. It's not just something man dreamed up. You know, I like to think of this human dream in terms of what I call Star Trek theology. You may have heard me talk about this in the past. You know, when you watch Star Trek that occurs hundreds of years in the future, and they just pronounce things like, time changes man. They'll say things like, do you remember when we solved all hunger? Or do you remember when all illness went away forever? Or do you remember when no one ever had a mental disease ever again? as if somehow just adding hundreds of years changes who people are. The gospel doesn't have a vague hope that somehow, some way, out there in the future, everyone will be nice and be good. No, the gospel treats us exactly where we are, in the midst of our sin and our need. And that is the solution that God has given. The message of the gospel itself is God's power. That is how he saves. It is not a vehicle to something else. The gospel saves. So what is that message then of the gospel? The message of the gospel is that God took the initiative. Remember, this is God's power, Paul says. That God takes the initiative by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to save sinners. He rescues sinners from death and sin, and from the path of destruction that they are on, and he puts them on a path of righteousness and life. All of this is God's work. It is his power. Now, I want you to notice in chapter 1, who is the subject of the active verbs? It is God who is acting. He is promising. He is loving. He is calling. And everywhere, we are passive. We are receiving. We are being loved. We are being called. It is God and his power that initiates the gospel. All of this is God's work. The gospel brings salvation to sinners. And this is why the gospel 
is good news. Because it doesn't depend on you and me. And because of that, Paul doesn't need to be ashamed of his own efforts. The gospel cannot be defeated because it doesn't depend on us. If it depended on us, we know that we would fall short because we don't have the power to accomplish it. We all know that we fall short in what we do. We are familiar with this in real life. It's the main difference between real life and movies. In the movies, there's always enough money to pay the bills. The hero always arrives in time. The bomb is always diffused with one or two seconds left on it, right? It never blows up, and he says, oops. That never happens. But in real life, there's a lot of oops, isn't there? We don't have enough money to pay the mortgage every month. We say things that we wish we would have kept inside. We come too late to rescue. There isn't always a cure for our disease. We fall short. If we had to rely upon ourselves, we would be lost. I had a picture of this this weekend using a lawn edger. Now, you didn't realize the pastor was going to use a lawn edger to teach you the gospel, but I am. We have a lawn edger that we've used to keep our lawn neat and clean so we don't get any citations from the homeowners association. And it came in the process of time that the edger came to the point where the blade was dull. Now, if you know anything about me and my use with machines, you know where this is going. And so I had to replace the blade on this edger. And so I read the instructions, pulled those out, found out exactly what kind of uh, wrench I needed to get the nut off so I could get this replaced. And I went, and long story short, 15 minutes later, every time I turned the wrench, the whole blade turned. And I couldn't get it off. So I turned, and I tried to leverage, and I couldn't get it off. And I put a screwdriver in to hold it in place, and I couldn't get it off. It kept spinning and spinning and spinning. And my response was to my wife, Deb, we need to throw this edger in the garbage and get a new one because it can't be fixed. It's beyond my ability. I give up. Now, the good news of the story is it wasn't beyond my wife's ability. (laughs) But you may know how to work with machines. Your thing may be computers or it may be math. Or it may be foreign language. But we all know that we fall short. That despite the best efforts that we have, despite the help and the instructions that come to us, that we can fall short. Now imagine if it wasn't trying to get a new blade on an edger, but your eternal destiny. Would you want that hinging upon your ability? Paul says, no, may it never be. Paul says... That the gospel can't be defeated because its power comes from God, not from me. And this is completely contrary to every other system of religion and philosophy in the world. Hinduism says, you've got to do better. And if you don't do better, you'll get reincarnated backwards. You think you're a man? You might be a cat. You might be a bug. You might be a piece of grass. I don't know. Depends on how well you do. In Islam, it's all about fulfilling the tasks that are before you. You have to do certain things in a certain way, the right way, or you fail. And you will not know peace with God. And even in Roman Catholicism, it points us to all we have to do 
in order for God to love us. And if we haven't done enough, then it sets up a place, it calls purgatory, where we can get the punishment for not having lived up to God's standard. But Paul preaches a gospel that cannot be defeated. It cannot be defeated because it doesn't depend on our efforts. The gospel is all about what Jesus did, not what we do. And the power of God had Jesus live a perfect life. The power of God made satisfaction for sin upon the cross. The power of God showed that the work of Jesus was finished and that he was victorious through the resurrection. The gospel shows the omnipotence of God. Now, when you think of God's omnipotence, His being all-powerful, I'm sure you think of it in terms of creation, how He created the universe and the earth and the sun and the moon. I'm sure you think of it in terms of His providence, how He governs all creatures and their actions. But if you thought of God's omnipotence in terms of salvation, that He is all-powerful, that Satan can't defeat it, That my sin can't defeat it. That my weakness can't defeat it. All I do is receive what God has done. Nothing more is added. Nothing more is needed. God makes sure it is effective. The second thing we see is that the gospel does not discriminate. The gospel is for everyone. It is universal. Now, it is natural for us to divide and segregate. I mean, we like to be around people who are like us, right? We like to be around people who talk like us, who dress like us, who speak like us. And so we naturally think that we do things better than other people. And that is the solution. Have you ever considered... You thinking, why do they cook the wrong way? Why don't they know how to cook? Or why do they play that wrong, boring sport? Don't they know what they should be playing? Why do they dress like that? Don't they know how they're supposed to dress? Because you see, in our minds, the way we are is the right way. So it shouldn't surprise us that we gravitate to other people who are like us, who do things the right way. We don't have to take the time to correct them and teach them the right way to do things. And so it would be easy for us to think there is only hope for people who act like us. And this happens when people come up with solutions. Our solutions are, be more like me. Work hard at it. And in order to be right with God, you have to do what we say. The standards that we have given. Now this is a significant danger for the modern missions movement. Because in far too many instances and places, we take Jesus to other countries and we say to people from Egypt or from the Sub-Sahara or from Korea or Japan or China, we say... Okay, first, really, you need to be more like an American. Let me teach you what it's like to be an American. Here, let me put a Coke in your hand. Let me put a burger in your hand. And then you can really understand what Jesus is saying. Now, we don't understand the ridiculousness of this 
But it's because we are designing a solution of our own accord. I'm sure that people in Brazil think everyone should be Brazilians. I'm sure that people in China think everyone should be Chinese. It's, of course, the best way to do things. The people from the Caribbean say, you should all be like us. But you see, the truth is, is that the gospel, because it is God's work, is for everyone. We don't need to be like anyone. And Paul says this in two ways. Look, he says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to whom? To everyone who believes. Now notice, there is no qualifier at all. And that means the gospel is for you. If you believe, the power of salvation is yours. Not after you do certain things. Not if you're a certain kind of person. The power of God is yours if you believe. Paul puts it another way as he expands on the everyone. He says, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, I don't want you to think that somehow Paul is saying that Jews are better than Greeks. Now, Paul is not describing a primacy here of peoples, but rather the outgrowth of the gospel. And this makes sense because God committed his covenant to Abraham. And then God revealed his law through Israel that the whole world might know his law. And then he promised that a descendant of David would have an everlasting kingdom. And then Jesus came as a Jew. And so the gospel comes first to the Jews. But it does not end there. Because God promised Abraham that he would be a blessing to all the nations. The scripture tells us that the gospel goes throughout all the world, to the Gentiles, to the islands. If we think about it, salvation of just the Jews is far too small for the work of Jesus. Jesus is the savior of the whole world. And so that's what Paul is getting at here. When he says to the Greek, he's using that as a stand-in for all of the other nations. Now, you can be thankful for that because if Paul had said to the Jew first and then to the Greek and the Roman and the Spaniard and the German and the Mexican and the Chinese and the African and the Korean and so on and so on, it'd be an awfully long letter. And we would perhaps find it a bit tedious. So Paul subsumes all of the world in these two categories, to the Jew and the Greek. And the Bible is very clear about this because God is not a respecter of persons. Think about how ridiculous it is to assume that some people are not worthy of the gospel. What you are saying is, is that God made a mistake in his creation. God is the creator of all races of all tribes, of all tongues, of all hair colors, of all skin colors, of all heights, of all weights. God is not a respecter of persons. There is no limitation to whom the gospel can reach. That's what Jesus told us in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
Peter reminds us of it in his sermon in Acts 2. And it shall come to pass that everyone that calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not just the rich, not just the poor, not just the wise, not just the foolish, not just the strong, not just the weak, not just men, not just women, all. And this, beloved, leaves you without excuse this morning. Will you come to Jesus? You can't say, well, I'm not smart enough to understand the gospel. It's not for me. No, the gospel's for you. You can't say, I'm not welcome with Jesus. Yes, you are. The gospel is for everyone. You see, the gospel comes to each and every person. And when we say that, that includes you. Now, it is not just the call of the gospel that is universal. It is also the very nature of the gospel that is universal. And the gospel, because of this, does not depend on you. You don't need to have a certain ability or a record. As a matter of fact, the gospel assumes that you are unable and incompetent. The problem with man is that he is unrighteous before a holy God. And so, to many of us, the obvious solution seems to be to get ourselves some righteousness. And after that, I can show myself as righteous before God, and He'll have to love me, and He'll have to accept me. And that's what we're tempted to do. Sometimes in whole, sometimes we think we can't even approach God unless we have a perfect record. Sometimes in part. Sometimes we believe that we have to trust Jesus and believe on Jesus to get saved, but in order to stay saved, we have to earn our own righteousness before God. Otherwise, Jesus will kick us to the curb. He won't love us anymore. But the gospel throws all of this out. It shows us that it is not the righteousness of man that matters, it is the righteousness of God that matters. That's why Paul says in verse 17, For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. It is in the gospel that God's righteousness is revealed to us. Now what does that mean? It means first that we can see the righteousness of God. That God is the author of righteousness. And that it is revealed in the person and work of Jesus. Jesus is righteous in and of himself. He is, after all, God. But he is also righteous in all that he does. Jesus lived perfectly a life without sin. Jesus kept every aspect of the law, even those aspects that he would not need to do as God himself. Have you ever wondered why Jesus... God incarnate obeyed his parents. Now, I know, kids, sometimes you think mom and dad don't know what they're doing. And you, need to, you don't need to listen to them because they don't know what they're doing. Um, Jesus is perfect and has perfect knowledge of everything. And he still obeyed his parents. Do you remember when John the Baptist came and Jesus said, baptize me? 
And we wonder, why does Jesus need to be baptized? John the Baptist wondered why Jesus needed to be baptized. And Jesus said what? Permitted to be so for the sake of righteousness. That's what Jesus meant. Jesus followed all of the law. He acted in every way righteous and perfect so that his righteousness would be seen. God offers this righteousness to us without cost, for no work at all. It is His righteousness, not our own. Secondly, it is revealed in action. It is not just what saves us, God's righteousness, but it actually is what has the saving effect upon us. God's righteousness is not something we simply observe from a distance. No, that righteousness makes us right with God. It delivers us from the guilt of sin. God's righteousness frees us to love God and love others. To fulfill the great commandment. It delivers us from the power of sin. And that righteousness, by the power of the Holy Spirit, makes us who we were meant to be. Delivering us from the pollution of sin. The gospel tells us to stop pretending. Stop pretending you can do it. Stop pretending it doesn't matter. It tells us that we must be righteous before God. And it tells us that God has provided that righteousness for us. Finally, we see that the gospel is a matter of faith. The gospel must first and foremost be received by faith. Now, the power of God is not unconditional and universal. We have to be very careful about this. There is absolutely nothing that we can do so that we might be saved and that God would love us. And the gospel is not restricted to a group of people. We saw this when Paul talked about everybody and to the Jew and to the Greek. But that doesn't mean that the gospel accomplishes salvation apart from faith. The gospel is the power of salvation to whom? Everyone who believes. And that means apart from faith, apart from believing what God says, we do not possess the gospel. Now this just makes sense, because remember what faith is. Faith is believing what God has said is true. Faith is affirming that that truth applies to me. And faith is trusting the Lord based on that truth. It is receiving what the Lord has given. It is the empty hand. Faith is the channel that God uses to bring us the gospel. It's not a work. It's not an act. In essence, faith says, I can't. God must. And lest we get too proud of ourselves, the Bible reminds us that even our faith is a gift of God. In Ephesians 2, 8, Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. But we must exercise this faith. We must trust the Lord Jesus Christ in who He is and what He has done. Charles Spurgeon Put it well. 
He says, faith is not a blind thing, for faith begins with knowledge. It is not a speculative thing, for faith believes facts of which it is sure. It is not an unpractical, dreamy thing, for faith trusts and stakes its destiny upon the truth of revelation. Faith is the eye which looks. It is the hand which grasps. It is the mouth which feeds upon Christ. The gospel is a matter of faith. Finally, we see that the gospel confirms for us that faith is the way we are to live. That the gospel is not only begun by faith, it is lived by faith. And to do this, Paul takes us all the way back to the Old Testament. At the end of verse 17, he writes, The righteous shall live by faith. Perhaps your translation is, The just shall live by faith. And what Paul is saying here is the only way to live in light of the gospel is by faith. Because after all, apart from the Lord and His righteousness, we have no hope at all. On our own, we are lost. We are falling. But God stepped in. And He saved us by His own power. How then could we go back to our own ways? How could we, having begun by faith, Paul tells the Galatians, try to continue in our own strength? Now this is the great temptation we have today. We are glad to be saved from death and hell. But there's still a part of us that wants to strike out on our own. We're not interested in God affecting how we live. We think we can handle it. And what Paul says here is that if you truly believe in Jesus, you are all in. There are no halfway measures. If you trust Him to save you, you must trust Him to be your Lord. Now, there is no need for this to scare us. Because think about what Jesus has done. Think about how Jesus has snatched you from the pit of hell and from your own sin and made you righteous and given you life. How could we not trust Him with the life that we live? In conclusion, the gospel is God's power, not our own. Because of that, it is for everyone. And the righteousness of Christ is offered to everyone who believes. Will you believe on Jesus now? Will you receive what the Lord has provided? And will you live your life by faith? Trusting Jesus, not just for the beginning of your life, but for everything? That is the gospel. I am not ashamed of it. I pray that you are not either. I pray that you trust Jesus. Let's pray.